afternoon. This is Dr. John Hunt, host of Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras. Uh, this is a recording, so we cannot take in questions this month. Uh, in the future, we hopefully will be live. This is a, a return guest. I had, it's unbelievable, I looked it up over two years ago. I had Dr. Mark McCullough come in and talk to us about the rusty patch bumblebee. And uh, we're going to talk about them and more things uh, I think he'll be interested in. One, one is their murder hornets. I think it'll be interesting. So good afternoon, Mark. How are you doing today? I'm John. I'm doing fine, and it's great to join you today. Thank you. Can you tell the listeners where you work and what you do? Well, I work right down the road from WERU, that is when we're not teleworking these days, but I work at the Craigbrook National Fish Hatchery. Um, I'm not a fish biologist, though. I work as an endangered species biologist for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, but our ecological services field office is co-located with the hatchery, and, um, and that's where we base our work from. Do you, is most of your work the local or statewide or countywide or federal? It's, it's uh, well, it's federal, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and we implement the Federal Endangered Species Act statewide. So our office and several biologists who work there on endangered species implement all aspects of the Endangered Species Act. So we do a lot of regulatory work. We have to, by law, review all of the federal funded and permitted projects in Maine to make sure they don't uh, cause the demise of any of our federally listed species. But some of the fun things we get to do is to go out into the field and to be able to do recovery programs for our listed species as well. And we also get involved from time to time with listing new species or taking some species off the Federal Endangered Species Act and list. So we work with all aspects of, of the Endangered Species Act. We talk about recovery. One of the, why you were on my show two years ago was the endangered bumblebee, the rusty patched bumblebee is endangered. And you've had two years to work on that project, so maybe there's some update. Uh, you may want to give us, uh, our listeners, kind of a quick review of who the Rusty Patch is and what's happened to it, at least um, in this area. Uh, maybe a quick, what habitat they like, quick life cycle, that sort of thing. And then tell us what's going on with them. Sure, I'd be glad to, John. Um, the rusty patch bumblebee is the first bumblebee, I think first bee of any species that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has listed on the federal endangered species list. And I think when you and I last talked, it had just happened several months previous to that. So it's also the newest species that we have listed here in Maine on the federal endangered species list. And the rusty patch bumblebee used to be one of the uh, most abundant bumblebees in the state of Maine. Uh, we have survey data from the University of Maine going back into the 1970s and 1980s, and when they were looking at bumblebee communities in the state of Maine, the rusty patch always came up 
amongst the top two or three most abundant bumblebees in the state. So one that you wouldn't think would become endangered. But into the 1990s, something happened, and we think it's probably a combination of increased pesticide use um, and climate change and uh, diseases and parasites that may have been brought from other portions of the country or even possibly other parts of the world that were introduced into North America. And the rusty patch bumblebee was particularly vulnerable to whatever this event or events were. And it declined precipitously. And that shows up in the University of Maine's data throughout the 1990s. But by the early 2000s, um, it was very rare. And in fact, the last one that was ever documented in Maine, and again, was through the university research, was in 2009 in the Stockton Springs area. So again, not very far from your WERU uh, office. But at any rate, um, this decline not only happened in Maine, but it happened right across the full range of the rusty patch bumblebee. They were found from Maine uh, down into the uh, Carolinas and into the Midwest and the upper uh, Great Lakes states and into Southern Canada. And their populations collapsed throughout that whole area. And uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service was petitioned to uh, list the rusty patch bumblebee. We evaluated its status and we indeed found that its populations had drastically declined. And so we uh, listed it as an endangered species in uh, 2018. And since then, we've been trying to relocate the rusty patch bumblebee here in Maine. Uh, we've been working with our partners at Maine Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife, the State Fish and Wildlife Agency, who has been conducting a bumblebee survey, survey the, the Maine Bumblebee Atlasing Project, the last five years. And so citizen scientists have been out uh, looking for capturing, photographing bumblebees so we get a better sense of uh, how these species are doing in our uh, main environment, but no one has found a rusty patch bumblebee. Last summer, I spent a lot of time in the field um, surveying the last place that it was found in and around Stockton Springs, and Maine Fish and Wildlife surveyed the mid-coast region pretty intensively, specifically looking for rusty patch bumblebees and so far, we've not been able to find them. So we're going to be looking again this summer if we can get out into the field with what's going on with uh, COVID-19. That's still uncertain. But if we can get into the field, we'll be looking again this summer, maybe in some remote corners of Maine, some mountaintops, maybe out on some of the islands to see if somehow the species has survived. We'd hate to think that one of the most abundant bumblebees that we ever had in Maine um, has been extirpated or extinct now from the state of Maine, but that may well be the case. And um, are there, are there uh, that's one thing that we're working on. Are there other uh, populations in other states? Yes, so surprisingly, as after the, the bumblebee was listed, 
lots of people have been surveying and looking for it all throughout North America and into Southern Canada as well, North um, United States and Southern Canada. Um, there have been some what we think are pretty good populations found in the Midwest and surprisingly uh, they're located in some of the larger cities of all things in the Midwest and we don't fully understand this but um, St. Paul, Minnesota for example, Madison, Wisconsin, Des Moines, Iowa seem to have still have robust populations of rusty patch bumblebees, which is a really good thing to know that we still have some populations. And uh, the, the theory is that perhaps in these larger cities, there's enough uh, gardens and, uh, and people's uh, arboretums and, and people's ornamental plantings that there's a high quality nectar source for the bumblebees that is helping them to have healthier populations and persist. On the other hand, in cities and, and urban areas, there's a high use of pesticides. And so these things, we're still, still wondering why the rusty patch bumblebee is holding on in those areas. Um, south of Go ahead. South of here in, in the southern Appalachians, it's recently been found that rusty patch bumblebees seem to be hanging on um, there at higher elevations in, in very remote settings. Um, some of our national forests, for example, uh, down in Virginia and West Virginia, have re they've recently rediscovered uh, populations of rusty patch bumblebees there. So that's good news as well, but so far nobody has rediscovered a population here in the Northeast or in Southern Canada. Has there been a, ideas of like the, the turkey reintroducing the rusty patch, taking populations from other parts of the United States and reintroducing them here? Very much so. In fact, I attended a conference just before the COVID-19 closures happened um, back in February where researchers uh, who are experts at bumblebee populations and genetics uh, gathered out in St. Paul, Minnesota, the Minnesota Zoo, um, to discuss that very uh, concept. How might we restore the rusty patch bumblebee to parts of their range where they formerly occurred? Could they be reintroduced? And there were some folks there who had experience actually raising rusty patch bumblebees in captivity back in the 1970s and 1980s when they were much more common. Um, folks who studied bumblebees readily grew colonies of captive colonies of rusty patch bumblebees. And so some of that, that, um, knowledge is still around. Uh, some of those scientific papers still describe how we can raise them in captivity. And so there's some thought that uh, the captive colonies of rusty patch bumblebees could be established and they could be reintroduced into portions of their range where they're now extinct. The captive uh, bumblebees, were they used for um, industrial farming out in the Midwest? pollinating tomatoes, that kind of thing? Uh, not the rusty patch bumblebee, but um, 
one of the other more common bumblebees uh, in, in North America, uh, Bombus impatiens is its scientific name or the common Eastern bumblebee, is a bumblebee that is raised in captivity to help with pollination of crops, including our blueberries here in Maine. But more commonly, uh, these bees are raised in captivity uh, for tomatoes and, and put into greenhouses where they pollinate the tomato plants in greenhouses. But ironically, it's that industry that may well have caused the demise of the rusty patch bumblebee because some of the culture of those uh, captive bumblebees was developed in Europe. And it's thought that perhaps when those bees were brought back to North America to be used in for agricultural purposes, that they brought a disease called Nosema. It's a bacterial disease um, that affects bees, and any honeybee keeper knows about Nosema, but there's different strains of the disease, and it's thought that perhaps um, bringing these bumblebees from North America to Europe to be raised and cultured and then brought back to North America may in fact have introduced a disease into our native bumblebee populations that, that sort of ravage through the populations of rusty patch bumblebee. Uh, uh, nature abhors a vacuum is one of the concerns of reintroducing the bumblebee, the rusty patch, back in Maine. Uh, is there um, increased competition? Because since they're gone, like the eastern bumblebee or other insects have kind of filled in their niche. Is that one of the problems that they're thinking about uh, that they'd be heading into if they try to reintroduce the rusty patch? Yeah, exactly. So things have changed and shifted. As you say, um, nature always tries to fill a vacuum. And other species of bumblebees have now become more common in Maine. Bees that, bumblebees that somehow resisted this disease or possibly the combination of disease and parasites that caused the demise of the rusty patch. So now the eastern common bumblebee and the tricolored bumblebee are the most abundant bumblebees in Maine. And so if we attempt in the future perhaps to reintroduce the rusty patch, they will have to, to uh, sort of elbow their way back into the bumblebee community, so to speak. But nature also is, is interesting in that all of our bumblebees have a unique niche. And it's in, in part related to the length of their tongues. So some bumblebees have long tongues and they use uh, or they uh, get their nectar from long tubular flowers. The rusty patch bumblebee belongs to a group that has very short tongues. And so they uh, partition the nectar source out there in the wild according uh, to the types of flowers that they specialize in. So uh, that's one issue about returning or trying to reintroduce the bumblebee. But um, the other issue, of course, are these threats still here in our environment? Do we still have the the possibly the nosema 
strain that might have caused a decline in the bumblebees to begin with? Is it still here? Um, do we still have the pesticides being used that might have contributed to their demise? So those are all things that folks are thinking about right now and, uh, and contemplating and considering as we develop our thoughts about trying to restore and recover the rusty patch bumblebee. I'll tell you, after I talked to you uh, two years ago, the bumblebees have become my favorite pet. Uh, they're just wonderful, wonderful little insects. Uh, we, we're, my wife is planting a garden uh, geared towards pollinators, and I'll talk about the New England pollinator thing in a minute. Um, and they're just wonderful animals. I even tried to set up a couple of bumblebee nests. I don't know if they're the right ones. I can talk to you after the show about it, see if it's the right ones or not. But there, there are things you can do to help in your backyard by getting habitat and flowers to the bumblebees that are here. And we're just gonna depend on you, Mark, to uh, get these uh, the rusty patched, uh, either find them and get them back. That'd be uh, wonderful. But there is a problem with pollinators in general. I'll just uh, first say this is Dr. John Hunt for Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks Zebras on WERU in Orland. And welcome to our show. And we're talking to Dr. Mark McCullough, a endangered species biologist. He just gave us a review of, of the trials and tribulations of the rusty patch bumblebee. And we'd like now to talk about pollinators in general. There's a a recovery campaign? Is it what's called the New England Pollinator uh, Campaign? Can you fill us in on that? Yeah, so we, uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, has been working with a sister federal agency, the Natural Resource Conservation Service, and some of you may know of them or have heard of soil and water conservation districts. They're all part of the Department of Agriculture. Um, but they have funding available to help uh, manage and protect and promote wildlife habitat as part of uh, their conservation work that they do. And in the last couple of years, they've taken a real interest in promoting pollinator habitats for some of our declining pollinators like bumblebees or the monarch butterfly, which has also been petitioned for listing under the Federal Endangered Species Act. So the Natural Resource Conservation Service and Fish and Wildlife Service have partnered together to create a program in the New England states. It started here in Maine, but other states wanted to join in as well, so we welcomed them. And it's called the New England Pollinator Partnership. And you can go online and look that up, there's a nice website that talks about how um, the funding that the NRCS has can be used to uh, help you establish pollinator projects on private lands. And especially for those of you who have larger uh, ownerships, uh, you might be a farmer, you might be a blueberry, uh, owner uh, of barons that you might own. Um, so it's, it's primarily geared towards landowners that have larger ownerships or are agricultural producers already. Um, but we're trying to work with those landowners to, to establish over the next 10 years or so about 7,000 acres of pollinator habitat in New England 
and that would include several thousand acres of pollinator habitat here in Maine. And so far, it's been a very uh, popular project with Maine residents. The NRCS office in Bangor is taking applications for landowners who might want to participate. And uh, there's been ample uh, response from uh, the agricultural growers here in Maine. So that's been a really good thing. But even at a smaller level, if you're like me and just own an acre or two, there's plenty of things that you can do to promote pollinators right in your own backyard. And it doesn't take a lot of money to do. And it's doable. It's not something that's uh, fancy. Just a matter of choosing the right plants, staying away from exotic species, right? Try to stick with the uh, homegrown species. Uh, Yeah. So we promote the use of our our native pollinator plants. And um, there, if you go online, there's uh, several websites that will provide you with lists of the best plants to use here in the Northeast or specifically here in Maine. And I would recommend um, viewers go to the Xerxes Society, that's spelled X-E-R-X-E-S, but they are invertebrate uh, specialists, invertebrate conservation specialists, and they have excellent resources on plant lists and how to establish a pollinator garden. It doesn't take very much looking on the internet to find those kind of resources. You can also build uh, bumblebee colony boxes like you're you're doing, John. Um, Some people have had some success with that here in Maine. Bumblebees will will search around and look for places, especially right now, this time of year, any bumblebee you see in mid-May is a queen bumblebee out looking for a place to establish her hive. Um, But other places that they like to uh, establish their hives are in uh, brush piles or compost piles, um, that type of thing. Uh, The brushy edges and margins of of between a field and a forest. Um, They're often looking for, and they have an incredible ability to find old mouse burrows or chipmunk burrows And this is a favorite place for them to establish their dens as well. So if you're watching bumblebees in mid-May, they're flying low. The queens are flying low over your yard, searching back and forth for mouse burrows and chipmunk burrows or under rocks or your compost pile uh, to establish their nest for the year. That's exciting. I've seen a lot more bumblebees this spring than last spring. I don't know if that's I have two and and I have a a small high tunnel that I use to grow some vegetables in and I'm out there every day the uh the queen bumblebees are somehow finding their way in there and I'm <laughs> that you don't want <laughs> gently releasing them back into my yard because I know that bumblebee is going to produce a a colony of of anywhere from 100 to to 500 workers later this summer. And I want those bumblebees to be out pollinating my garden this summer. Wow, up to 500 in the nest. I I thought they had already set up. So this is the time. So I I put the nest up and I thought, oh, it's too late. Um, No, this is exactly the time in mid-May. 
um, when all the, the queens are out looking for a place to establish their colony. Yeah, they're busy eating too, boy, I tell you. They are. They're nectar feeding. I've seen them on dandelions and other wildflowers here in May. And then when the blueberries come, uh, bloom in another week or so, uh, that's one of the favorite foods of bumblebees. And they have this unique ability to pollinate blueberry by hanging on the flower and vibrating their wings. And it's and it's a type of unique type of pollination that the blueberries require. And so bumblebees are really specialized to pollinate our lowbush blueberries here in Maine. And they're much hardier than, than honeybees at doing that. Uh, you might have noticed that bumblebees will be out at all times of the, the day. They're out on cool days. They'll even be out on rainy days. They're very persistent. And, uh, and much more robust than honeybees who will only pollinate blueberries on the sunniest and warmest of days. Now oh, they're picky, I tell you. <laughs> we need them too. Well, that's yes. a lot of good information um, that we can all uh, use. And I encourage every listener to think about contributing to helping our pollinators. Yeah, and this is... Uh, Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks and Zebras, WERU in Orland, Maine, talking to Dr. Mark McCullough, an endangered species biologist. And we're going to go off a little bit to a more timely uh, subject that hit the news a couple weeks ago. And I asked uh, Mark to do some uh, brushing up on this uh, kind of scary thing that's going on out in Washington State, what they call the murder hornets. At least that's what the, uh, the news people, kind of startling. So, Mark, tell us uh, the common name of the murder hornets and where they came from, how they, how they got here. To, I think they came over from Asia to Canada or something like that. So give us a rundown on that part of the story, and we'll continue on from there. Yikes. Yes, there's <laughs> a lot in the news about, about this hornet. And I'd actually heard about them at some of the bumblebee or bee conferences that I've been at. And uh, they're a bit of a curiosity because they're such a large bee. They are a member of the hornet family. And we have uh, bald-faced hornets here in Maine. Everyone's probably familiar with the big paper nests that they build. Right. Um, we have our own native hornet. But, of course, this is a species that's found in Asia, Southeast Asia, and Eastern Russia. and uh, like so many things, like I was discussing before, we're moving uh, products all around the world. It's a global economy. And, uh, and so somehow, probably on a load of lumber or, or some product coming in from Asia, uh, these hornets were introduced uh, very recently into uh, Vancouver Island in British Columbia, and then they've also been found um, nearby in Washington State, a, a location about 50 miles away um, in Washington. So in Asia, they're called the Asian giant hornets. In Japan, they're called the Japanese giant hornet. Uh, the media here in North America has called them the murder hornets. <laughs> Are an imposing beast. Well, and both 
the Asian names had giant in them. Yes. How big are they? They're, they're, um, they approach almost two inches in length. Oh, uh, wow. And their wingspan up to three inches in length. So imagine a bee of that size. They, they're one of the, well, they are the world's largest bee, I believe. And, uh, and they're, they're quite the predators, uh, whereas our bees are mostly feeding on pollen and nectar. Uh, these Asian giant hornets are intensely predatory. They eat other insects and kill them and eat them. And um, so they, they have a similar life history to our bees um, in North America and that the queens emerge about this time of year. And, and just as we were describing for bumblebees, they cast around, fly around, looking for a suitable place to have their colony. Um, it takes them a little longer for their colonies to build up and the workers really don't start to emerge until mid-July. But when they do, those workers uh, will fly um, upwards of five to eight miles from the, their colony location, mostly searching for uh, larger insects to feed on and bring back to the colony um, to feed uh, the young larvae that are in the colony. So the colony sizes, they can grow um, upwards of 100 workers or so. Um, and then by fall, uh, new queens and drones, which are the males, are produced. And uh, they, uh, the queens emerge from these uh, colonies, which are underground. And uh, the, the males wait outside the colonies to mate with these queens. And then once the queens are mated, uh, they go off to find a place to hibernate for the winter, and, and the life cycle is repeated the following spring. How far uh, will a mated female go from the original nest to, to, to overwinter? Well, if their foraging distance is up to upwards of five to eight miles, I imagine that the queens would, would travel at least that far and possibly even farther. They're very strong flyers. And uh, being such a large insect, they can go long distances. Have they, uh, is, it, is the hypothesis that these uh, hornets came from Canada into Washington, or are there separate entry points, Canada and, and Washington at the same time? From what I've read, there was genetic work done that hasn't been published yet, but indicates that they came from two different sources, possibly two different events. So the, the two occurrences don't seem to be related to each other. Okay, because there was some information that was, it seemed like they moved down to, from Canada. That's one of the things I read and I just didn't, I wanted to know how fast they spread. Uh, they still five miles a year, that's, that's quite a bit. Yeah. The potential is there for them to spread. Whether they do or not um, remains to be seen. And the province of British Columbia and the state of Washington are on full alert um, and have notified the public this spring to be on the lookout for these giant hornets. So 
there's been only two occurrences, um, one in near, uh, well, two on, on Vancouver Island, and they actually located a colony before the end of the summer and destroyed it um, on Vancouver last year. And then just a single bee has been documented down in Washington State. But there's a lot of concern that the habitat, the climate, in the Northwest is very similar to the places in Asia where this hornet occurs and that it could establish itself here. And so there's a website that the Washington Department of Agriculture has created, it has a lot of good information about the giant hornet. Um, they're alerting the public um, to watch out for them and doing everything possible to, to locate any individuals this spring um, and to try to find any colonies and destroy them so this insect doesn't become established in North America. Are they aggressive to people and animals? Yeah, that's how I had heard about them in the past is they are very aggressive. Uh, not, not unlike our bald-faced hornets that if you happen to step on a nest or disturb them, um, they'll readily attack. And they're alleged to have a very painful sting. Their stinger is quite large because they're large. Um, it's up to a quarter inch in, in length. And apparently is very painful to be stung by one of these hornets. People in Asia have lived with them, of course, for ages, just like we live with our yellow jackets and hornets here, other stinging uh, bees that we have. And... Uh, so they're actually in some cases in, in Asia thought to be a beneficial insect, even though their sting is, is quite painful. And if you're stung enough times, it can be qu become quite dangerous. There are people that die from being stung multiple times by giant hornets. But on the other hand, uh, as I said earlier, they eat insects. And uh, in some cases, they they're uh, thought to be beneficial because they eat agricultural pests like caterpillars that might be on certain crops. So in Asia, they live with them. There's no attempt to try to eradicate them. They're native there. Um, and some people feel that even though that uh, occasionally you're stung, that, um, that they, they have some beneficial use and, uh, to, to people as well. I understand from what I read, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that in the summer when they're getting more workers out there, they'll find a honeybee hive and pretty much wipe them out in a couple hours I and mean, literally kill them all and take them to the nest. Is that true or did I read a misinformation? No, that's absolutely true. They'll kill other bees and honeybees are a particularly rich source of food for a colony of giant hornets. And once a giant hornet locates a honeybee colony, they'll alert other giant hornets to its existence and an attack will begin on the honeybee colony. And so they kill the honeybees by biting off their heads. And, and well, that's one way a beekeeper knows that they've got a giant hornet problem is that decapitated uh, honeybees in, in and around the the hive. But once they uh, commandeer a honeybee hive, they 
uh, will, over a period of time, take the larvae out of the honeybee hive and take them to their uh, giant hornet colony to feed to their young. And they also feed off the honey as well. Uh, so there's been uh, concern here in North America that the giant hornet could pose a threat to our native honeybee, not, well, honeybees are not native to North America, but they've been here for hundreds of years, but to, to honeybees. So that um, is a big concern about the honeybee population. And if uh, they're going to get wiped out, I can see where the, uh, some beekeepers are worried about it. Now these uh, the honeybees are in, in the United States don't know anything about these big hornets. So they really don't know how to defend them. But can honeybees defend them? Like over in Asia, do they, have they mounted a defense? Yeah, so there's some interesting observations from Asia where the giant hornet occurs and where people have attempted to, uh, to culture honeybees. And so the strains of honeybees that we typically have here in North America are naive to the giant hornet, very vulnerable. But there is a strain of Japanese honeybees that know what to do. And it's just fascinating how they respond to an attack by giant hornets. So they actually <clears throat> will lay a trap for the giant hornet and let it come right into the hive rather than attack it outside the entrance to a bee, uh, honeybee hive. So they let the giant hornet come in and when it comes in, they're ready and there's about 100, 200 honeybees that will envelop the giant hornet in a ball of honeybees and they will start beating their wings rapidly to um, increase the heat around the giant hornet. And giant hornets are really sensitive and once the heat gets to be about 115 to 120 degrees, uh, that begins to, to kill the giant hornet. It's not only the heat, but also by all of this vigorous activity, this ball of honeybees actually reduces um, the oxygen and increases the carbon dioxide around the uh, giant hornet. And so it's that combination of increased heat and increased carbon dioxide that will kill uh, the giant hornet. Of course, there's some honeybees that are lost in the course of doing this as well, but they have found that this is an effective way to defend their hive. Uh, these Japanese honeybees have found to defend their hives from the giant hornet. So apparently just stinging them didn't work. No, stinging doesn't work because the giant hornets are so heavily armored and, and much, much larger than the honeybees that the Honeybees can't get their stingers into the giant hornets. So in the, when the, you may not know this, but when I ask anyway, uh, if the hornet goes into the hive, do the honeybees like, make like a false entrance kind of thing or a false little room that they can, or they just wait for them to come into the main entrance and then these ball of bees go after Yeah, no, they actually make sort of a little false entrance, or at least uh, usually if you approach a honeybee hive, there's little guard bees, worker bees that are out front guarding the hive, but they'll just 
give the illusion to the giant hornet that there's no defense of this hive, come on right in and, and raid us, but they're inside it and waiting and pounce right on the giant hornet when they enter the hive. That's fascinating. Yeah, honeybee keepers in Asia and Japan, Eastern Russia have also learned how to deal with the giant hornets to prevent them from raiding bee colonies. And they use, they can find the right size wire mesh that will allow honeybees to pass freely in and out of a honeybee hive. But the mesh is, is small enough that it prevents the giant hornets from entering. So that's one way that um, you can defend a, a honeybee hive from the giant hornets. That doesn't prevent the giant hornet, though, from killing honeybees that, that emerge out of the hives, and they will do that. So they'll go out in a field and hunt them down one by one, so to speak. Yeah, and apparently one of the favorite foods of the giant hornets are praying mantises, and you know how large those get. They yeah. can grow yeah. inches long. That's one of their favorite foods because they'll haul that praying mantis that they've killed all the way back several miles to their their colony to feed their young. I didn't realize uh, praying mantis were that plentiful because we rarely see them. Uh, I think they are, yeah. We don't see them often here, um, but in Asia, I think they're more common. Oh, that's uh, fascinating. We So we, we're out here in the Orland area and Bucksport, so we don't really have to worry about these giant hornets quite yet. Not quite yet. We have enough to worry about with COVID-19 at the moment. Which brings me to, to ask you about COVID-19 and how this whole pandemic has influenced wildlife in general and uh, your research. Can you give us a little insight on how, first of all, has it done anything to wildlife? Well, as far as we know, no, it is an, an exotic pathogen uh, from Asia. Um, we believe our North American bats could be vulnerable to COVID-19. Uh, you've probably read that COVID-19 likely originated in, in bats in Asia and might have actually gone into aardvarks or other species in these wet markets before it jumped into humans. But we know that, that this virus and other similar viruses are uh, found in, in bats commonly, but this virus has never been in North America. And we're concerned that our North American bats may catch COVID-19 from us. And so there has been uh, alerts go out from uh, national wildlife and wildlife disease groups alerting wildlife biologists to avoid handling North American bats during this time that we have the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, our North American bats, many of the species have been decimated because of white nose syndrome, a fungus that was brought in from Europe and now we don't want to introduce yet another disease that could be a, a big problem for our North American bats. So they, they're not carriers, they're actually uh, hosts. They, they will get sick mm -hmm. 
Yeah, they could get sick as sick as humans are getting our North American bats because they've never been exposed to this virus. We don't know, um, but but we would not like that for that to happen. That's a that's a pretty sure thing. So from what you can see, other wildlife species, you don't really have to be too concerned with. Yeah, well, like wild wild. We also heard that some tigers and lions um, in zoos in England have, uh, and then dogs here in North America have been diagnosed or been uh, found to have had COVID-19 virus. So we don't know what other species of wildlife um, might be able to acquire this virus. We don't know what effects it might have on them um, so much that we don't know. Uh, as as far as we know, but I, I don't know how we would know this. It hasn't jumped from humans to our, any of our native wildlife yet in North America. Let's hope that doesn't happen. It hasn't really jumped to our domestic animals either. You know, a couple of dogs were positive, a couple of cats. The tests could have just measured a fragment of the virus. Uh, they weren't showing any clinical signs. So I think uh, with dogs and cats, we would have seen something a lot more significant at this point. But wildlife, yeah. as a wildlife biologist, you wouldn't know. You wouldn't have any measurement unless you start seeing dead animals in the woods. Exactly, yeah. And, and we don't really have a lot of monitoring programs set up to be able to assess wildlife health. Um, like that to be able to detect those things. For instance, when white nose syndrome struck the bats in North America, it took us a while to figure out what exactly was going on. Um, By that time, the the fungus had spread uh, quite widely here in the Northeast. That's still a problem. Still a problem, yeah. And no, I thought thought they were working on some kind of... um not treatment, the vaccination or something with the bats on that? Is there some research? Yeah, there's been some ideas of, of trying to, to treat bats, to try to treat the caves that they uh, hibernate in in the winter. Um, but so far, there's really not been um, any easy solution to figuring out how to um, alleviate this problem for our North American bats. Well, how about your work and your research? How's this COVID-19 affected you and your job? Well, it's definitely affected uh, wildlife biologists and their ability to get out into the field. And this is the time of year that we're starting to do lots of our, uh, or normally be starting lots of our work for endangered species. Um, For example, the piping plovers have returned back to Maine on our southern main beaches. And uh, maybe this is a positive thing for them. They're finding the beaches relatively empty and some beaches are closed and still closed at our state parks. And these are some of the more important nesting areas for the piping plover. Nevertheless, we have um, some of our partners from Maine Audubon that are still out fencing the areas where piping plovers nest. Um, and uh, and putting up the signage and doing their best to protect the piping plovers, but maybe they'll they'll have a relatively 
uh, easier summer of nesting with fewer people and dogs on the beaches in southern Maine. But it'll affect my ability this summer to be able to go out and survey for rusty patch bumblebees. I'm still not sure whether I'll be able to do that. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is um, told their biologists that if there are uh, endangered species at risk, we can go out and, uh, with permission, review of what we're doing, go out and and uh, do whatever is needed to protect endangered species like was going on with piping plovers. But otherwise, all of our site visits to uh, projects and all of our field work, um, like survey work, um, is all on hold. Um, and we still are uncertain as to whether we'll be able to get out and do field work this summer or not. We're all teleworking and uh, doing our best to protect the country's wildlife and natural resources from our homes. Well, I, I guess, excuse my, um, the image I have of you going out in field work, how is that related to exposing yourself to other people? I mean, aren't you out in the woods? Are yeah, you know? there is an element of that, but um, we have certain safety protocols. For example, if we're using boats or canoes, we have to be in pairs. That's always been the case. And so it's hard to socially distance yourself from someone when you're you're in a canoe and launching a canoe and that type of thing. Um, bumblebee surveys, that might be a little different. I tend to do those on my own. So that might be a, a, a safer activity that we could do and be socially distanced. And it remains to be seen, you know, whether we'll get to a point this summer where we feel comfortable that that's a, a thing that we can do. But like we've, we always say wildlife management is people management. And we work a lot with, with people and our, our conservation partners. And so it's, it's rare that when we're doing field work, whether it's looking at a, a development site um, that, that we need to review permits on or, or whether it's to look at a, a stream crossing uh, for Atlantic salmon, that we're not doing that with, with state fish and wildlife uh, biologists and and other partners there. So um, it's truly rare that we're doing things um, where we're totally on our own. Mm. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So you're still trying to figure it out? <laughs> we are, yes. Mm. Does the uh, state restrictions, uh, you, have, you have to abide by those, obviously? Yeah, so it, it'll vary state by state how the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, uh, is able to, to do uh, work in the field this summer, and that'll largely be dictated by how their state is um, reopening, so to speak, or what safety measures are being put in place to protect people um, during this COVID-19 um, pandemic. So, We'll be abiding here in Maine by what Governor Mills um, suggests and, and taking things slowly. Um, you know, as a wildlife biologist, I'm, I'm concerned about my own health and my family's health too. So as important as it is to get out and, um, 
and monitor and assess and and protect our our nation's wildlife, we also have to be very aware of our coworkers and and families and and the public at large as well. So we're going to be pretty conservative, I think, this summer in the amount of work that we do outdoors, um, and uh, and and be very careful, especially what we do in the office as well. So we're not certain how much longer this teleworking will occur, but I, I can say that we we've, we've been learned how to become pretty effective at our work from our homes, and um, and and. There's no less work getting done right now than there was two or three months ago before this started. Well, that's good to hear. Speaking of, of work and projects, we have a couple more minutes. You were working with um, being an endangered uh, species biologist with the bald eagle. You have a bald eagle project you're working on, and uh, how's that going, and what kind of concerns are you dealing with? Our work with bald eagles has changed a lot over the years. Um, the bald eagle is no longer on our federal endangered species list. It's not a state uh, endangered species any longer either because we've been successful and their populations have recovered uh, a great deal. But bald eagles are still protected under a federal law called the Bald and Golden Eagle Protection Act. And the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, helps to implement that federal law and advise the public on how best to avoid disturbing and taking bald eagles, which is prohibited under, under this, this law. We don't really don't know how many eagle nests we have in Maine. The last count was made in 2018, and at that time there was a little over 700 eagle nests that were documented. So my guess would be at this point that we're probably approaching a thousand bald eagle nests in the state of Maine. But that means that lots of people who want to do projects in the state of Maine are perhaps near eagle nests, and so they contact our office to be sure that the work that they're doing is not likely to disturb or take eagles under the Eagle Act. And so that means this time of year, we're pretty busy. The eagle nesting season has just uh, begun a month or a month and a half ago. Eagle chicks are just hatching right now as we speak across the state. And so we've been pretty busy the last couple of weeks answering lots of questions from the public about whether they can build a dock near this eagle nest or to build a new home or to um, do a forestry project, for example. And uh, so we spend a lot of time uh, providing advice on how to do those things safely and at times of years, time of year when they are not likely to uh, disturb bald eagles. That's good to hear. People are are respectful of that. That's very encouraging. What we have just a, two minutes to go. Um, what's the main uh, man-made threat to bald eagles now? In the '60s, it was DDT. What is it now? Do you see uh, for the population? Yeah, it's been interesting. I I I think probably habitat and uh, the the changes that we're we're making on the landscape and and especially 
adjacent to our rivers and lakes are probably the the thing that eagles are, are most affected by. But this past winter in particular, we've had uh, quite a number of eagles that have died of lead poisoning. And that's an increasing conservation issue that we've had is um, eagles picking up lead fragments uh, left behind probably by by hunters, um, animals that, that escaped and, and uh, weren't retrieved by hunters and eagles are famous for feeding on finding those and feeding on carrion and in so ingesting lead particles and uh, and I think we've had over a dozen eagles this past winter that that we know of that have died of lead poisoning so that's been a conservation issue that has been emerging and and we've been trying to work with Maine Inland Fisheries and Wildlife and find some solutions to avoid uh, further losses of eagles. Didn't think that lead was still a problem. Still is. I thought they outlawed lead for shot and stuff. They outlawed lead for waterfowl hunting. And ah, so what we're talking about here is lead that are in rifle bullets that are used um, for hunting deer or coyotes or moose, um, and there's still lead in those. There are non-lead choices, and that's one of the the conservation things that that hunters can do is to shift to to non-lead sources of ammunition. We've run out of time, Dr. McCullough. It's been a pleasure once again for your second round of uh, suffering with me. Uh, very enlightening. It's a great show. Thank you so much for being on the show with me. John, it's been a pleasure, and I hope all of your your listeners can create their own little pollinator gardens this summer. That'd be a great COVID-19 project. I'll be pushing it. So Good. signing off, this is uh, Dr. John Hunt for Let's Talk Animals, Aardvarks, Zebras. Until next time, enjoy your pet, and don't forget to give them a hug. Bye.